Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. President Biden has announced Ketanji Brown Jackson as his pick to replace Justice Breyer. Here he is at the White House today. It's my honor to introduce to the country a daughter of former public school teachers, a proven consensus builder, an accomplished lawyer, a distinguished jurist, one of the nation's most, on one of the nation's most prestigious courts. My nominee for the United States Supreme Court is Judge Ketanji Jackson. And we got to hear from Judge Jackson herself. I must begin these very brief remarks by thanking God for delivering me to this point in my professional journey. My life has been blessed beyond measure, and I do know that one can only come this far by faith. Breyer said he'll step down after this term's opinions are done. Should be enough time for Jackson's confirmation, unless, of course, something weird happens, which is impossible. Stay tuned. Kimberly, you listened to the nomination announcement. Anything stand out to you? Uh, There were a couple little tidbits in there that I hadn't really known. Um, I think sort of the Biden administration trying to anticipate some lines of attack. There was a lot of talk about uh, how she comes from a family of law enforcement officials, and she actually, um, you know, has the support of the police officers union. Um, I think that is in response, and she explicitly mentioned um, the Washington Post story that recently came out about her uncle, who had been serving a life sentence for drug offenses, um, but then was commuted by President Obama. There was that that in there, and I think that's likely to come up again during the confirmation hearing. Um, and then just some other tidbits about her life. Um, you know, she grew up in Miami and uh, met her husband in Harvard. What about you, Jordan? Anything stick out to you? Yeah, I had the same thought about kind of getting out in front of the whole criminal thing. I don't know if that'll change what'll happen since we recently saw Republicans on the Judiciary Committee scrutinizing a trial court nominee who had worked for the Innocence Project. So I'm not really sure there's anything that can be done. If you've been a public defender, you'll probably be criticized in some way, and with her especially having done some work for Guantanamo detainees. So people are going to do what they're going to do, but I think sort of, you know, kind of owning her story. And along those lines, I think actually what stood out to me the most was the religiosity that started it off and her thanking God and stereotypically uh, this is not something that's maybe as thought of when it comes to a Democratic nominee as a Republican one and so almost in that same category of owning the subject whether it comes to law enforcement or criminal justice or religion or anything. Yeah, you know, Jordan, that uh, reminds me of her D.C. Circuit confirmation, uh, where she was asked uh, by Republican senators about her service on a school board, uh, which her children were attending at the time. And, you know, it was a Christian school. And it talked about, um, you know, that it had a faith mission about supporting the unborn and, you know, uh, also said marriage was between one man, one woman. And their point was, you know, these same kinds of statements were objectionable to Democrats when Amy Coney Barrett was up. Why aren't they now? But we have seen some other lines um, of 
Republican opposition to her, right? And that a lot of it focuses on Guantanamo and her representation of um, the people there. Do you want to, you wrote a story about that, right? I did, a story that came out today. You can find it on news.bloomberglaw.com, website that we never fail to mention. Yeah, so this came up too in at least her most recent confirmation hearing to the D.C. Circuit. You had Senator Cotton asking if she had represented a terrorist at Guantanamo. Even in more detail, I picked up on the questions from Senator Sass, who was asking then Judge Jackson whether she considered resigning from her public defense post instead of continuing with that. The bottom line is I think it falls into that category of criticizing defense and public defense and that type of idea and to the extent that the war on terror is a Republican-Democratic divide. It's just really not that much more complicated than that, and that's the end of it. Yeah, it's really interesting, too. One of the cases that um, is being pointed to is an amicus brief she wrote on behalf of our friends at the Cato Institute. This is a pretty uh, conservative libertarian think tank. And then another thing that I've seen is particularly from Lindsey Graham is his complaint that the nominee wasn't Judge Michelle Childs. Yeah, and I think that makes sense, because if you go back and you look at Graham's support of Childs, you ask, why is he supporting this Democratic nominee effectively? And I think it makes a lot of sense if you're him, because if you look at the votes, you see that the Democrats have the votes. There's nothing that Republicans can do one way or the other. Why not support a nominee who's from your home state and just happens to be more conservative than the likely nominee who wound up being Judge Jackson? And so then in the end, no matter what happens, you supported your hometown favorite who would have been more conservative anyway, and then he could either vote for Jackson like he did for the D.C. Circuit or not. And it's really just kind of house money that he was playing with. So I think that made a lot of sense from his perspective. And so for those same reasons, it made sense that it wasn't Childs who was ultimately picked. Do you remember the last time Republicans told a Democratic president who to nominate and the the result of that? It rhymes with Marland. Poor Merrick Garland. Guy just can't catch a break. <laughs> right. Because that that was the same that was the thing, right? Was that, you know, some Republicans had said, oh, that Obama was gonna get this like really liberal nominee and you know, somebody like Merrick Garland could get through with flying colors and then you know, Obama nominates Merrick Garland and then That exactly proves the point though, because the only question you need to ask going back to then is who has the votes. And so Republicans had the votes and nothing was going to happen. And so I was wondering if Biden was going to nominate Childs under the guise of her being a bipartisan nominee, which again, wouldn't have been necessary and really only makes sense if you look at it from this kind of democratic way of thinking of bipartisanship, meaning Republicans are going to be less upset because who would have said that the same amount of Democrats would have wanted to vote for Childs as they'll want to vote for Jackson. And so it wouldn't have really made sense. Well, and then to the other nominee who was supposed to be in kind of the top three was Leandra Kruger. um, And she obviously was not the pick. But that kind of seems to me like that's in line with a lot of the other judges that the Biden administration has nominated and the work they're doing there to bring more professional diversity to um, to the bench. And so, you know, this idea of nominating a public defender seemed really important to this nomination. I think that might be why, you know, 
Jackson was the clear favorite. Yeah, and she just went through the nomination process. We've talked about this before, and I think that was a huge help. And Childs will still be on the D.C. circuit if that winds up going through. I thought the interesting thing that came up with Childs recently was if you saw that research about how she denied pretty much every compassionate release motion that came in front of her as opposed to Judge Jackson. And so I think that would have been an interesting story had Childs been the nominee. But what I'm wondering about now, and this is not necessarily Supreme Court related, but whether that's going to be a potential issue for her D.C. Circuit nomination. We can let our colleague Maddie Alder sort that out. Well, what else is there to say? Or should we move on to the news everybody wants? Which is? Sneak peek. Let's do it. The Supreme Court is still going to be hearing some arguments week of February 28th, starting off with a big one on Monday. Kimberly, what's happening? That's right. Uh, This one will sound familiar to listeners because we did our deep dive episode on it. So check that one out for more information. These are a group of cases going under the lead case West Virginia versus EPA. And this is about the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. And the question for the justices is whether or not the EPA has that authority and the big kicker is going to be dun, 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 the major questions doctrine. The supposed major questions doctrine, as Justice Kagan called it this week. That's true. Um, so uh, the major question doctrine was employed by the court to strike down Biden's uh, vax or test mandate for large employers. Basically, the thinking is, you know, if Congress is unclear about particular authorities, then the court should assume that Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes and that it doesn't really quite easily grant, um, you know, this kind of big powers to federal agencies without explicitly saying so. Um, You mentioned that Justice Kagan had brought that up during arguments in a totally unrelated case. um, And I actually wrote about that because it was real interesting where the justices were talking about doing away with all of these kinds of canons. And it just seemed to me like, Justice Kagan's still mad about that vaccine case. Yeah, and about every big case that's happened and will happen for the foreseeable future. Uh, But this case in and of itself is a big case. Um, But, of course, the implications for other administrative cases is also pretty looming large in this one. And that's, of course, because, you know, the more robust the major questions doctrine gets, the harder it will be for agencies to really tackle all these big issues unless Congress says so clearly. On Tuesday, the justices are going to kick off their argument with what case, Jordan? So we have a couple combined cases here, Ruan versus United States and Khan versus United States. This issue involves prosecutions of doctors under the Controlled Substances Act and whether a subjective good faith defense is available for their prescribing of drugs. The doctors say that a more restrictive objective standard would expose them to draconian prison terms for conduct that's more appropriately addressed by administrative sanctions or civil litigation. The Justice Department says the law doesn't let doctors decide for themselves that any level of drug distribution whatsoever counts as medical practice. And this is an interesting case. I'm going to be interested to see how the court is going to tackle it. It's basically a white collar case because we're talking about doctors, even though it's drug dealing kind of implicates this question of 
federal overreach, which again is applied in a more favorable way to white collar sorts of defendants. Think of something like the Bridgegate case and that whole line of cases. And so I'm curious to see if the court is looking at it from that type of perspective when they're looking at these types of white collar professionals that they're used to interacting with and whether they're going to be scrutinizing the government in maybe a way that wouldn't happen in a a blue collar drug case. So I'll be interested to see what the court's going to do there. And then we move on to Marietta Memorial Hospital Employee Health Benefits Plan versus DaVita. That's a mouthful. Uh, And this one is a dispute over kidney care coverage. This involves a federal law governing how employee plans must treat and stage kidney disease. And, you know, basically the claims are that employers are making coverage of these end-stage kidney diseases in order to encourage people to go on to Medicare um, and making the federal government pay for their costly treatments. So that's what this one's about. Pretty narrow case. The last one. This one involves one that I know you like, Kimberly. Uh, It's a case called Egbert and involves the Bivens Doctrine, which I know you've been uh, covering for a while. And listeners might recall that the Bivens Doctrine allows civil suits against federal officials, but the court has been quite restrictive in what types of claims are actually allowed. And it seems that claims might be even further restricted in this case. The court agreed to review a Ninth Circuit decision that sided with a plaintiff who ran a bed and breakfast. He said a Border Patrol agent violated the Fourth Amendment when the officer questioned a guest on his property for immigration purposes and that the officer violated his First Amendment rights for retaliating against him when he reported the agent to his supervisors. So the Supreme Court declined to grant cert on the question whether to overrule Bivens completely, so it still might technically exist, but the court agreed to consider whether suits can be brought at all for the types of claims that the plaintiff wanted to bring here. So even if Bivens might continue to technically exist, we might see a further narrowing of it here. What do you think, Kimberly? Safe bet? I think you're leaving out a really important detail Oh, when you described this case, that the dude's bed and breakfast on the border was called the smuggler's in. That's important. Which yeah. kind of seems a little Might have been a red flag, but. <laughs> I think that's going to do it. You know, I usually close off with, I think that's going to do it. I haven't, I'd noticed that before. When I sign off on like radio interviews, it's always happy to do it. Are you not happy to do this? <laughs> anyway, I'm happy to have done this with you, Jordan. And uh, listeners can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news and news about Biden's nominee on news.bloomberglaw.com. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.